Hey, everybody, this is Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. On today's show, my guest is Dan Juisty. Dan is the founder and CEO of an organization called Brigade. Since 2016, Brigade chefs have collaborated with partner K-12 school districts to support and elevate the quality of their child nutrition programs. They have also expanded their reach to encompass institutional food service operations of all kinds, and their mission is to change what is expected of food served in these public spaces. Dan is the former head chef at the best restaurant in the world, Noma in Copenhagen. He left that job to pursue a passion to cook for people who really need and deserve high-quality food. Dan is the essence of someone who has really fixed work by trying to align himself with his values and to go out into the market and make magic happen. So if you wonder what's up with school lunches and how do we make them better, and also who makes them better, whose responsibility is this, well, sit tight and I'll be right back with Dan Juisty and more of Let's Fix Work. Work is broken, and so is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is picking up the pieces so you can take control of your career, put yourself first, and be your own HR. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, Dan. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. You know, you and I met at an event in Connecticut where we were talking about food and a love of food. And I was just so taken by your story and how you've kind of fixed work for yourself. So why don't you kick us off today telling us who you are and what you're all about? Yeah, sure. So again, my name is Dan Justy. I am the founder and CEO of a company called Brigade, which essentially is putting professional chefs, or should I say, is kind of encouraging more professional chefs to get into a space of cooking that most don't find too glamorous, which is really institutional food. And most specifically now, we are working in schools and public schools. So that's kind of the project at the moment. I think you can define what we're doing in a variety of ways, but that's kind of the general idea. So why are you doing what you do? Because you had a pretty awesome early career story. So tell us about that and how you wound up kind of marrying your skills with your current passion. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I started cooking at a young age and I think I was 14, 15. I come from a big Italian family. So cooking for me and food in general and feeding people is something that was always kind of on the top of my list just in terms of a passion. And then I got into high school and it was kind of the only thing that excited me. So I decided that would be my career. So I started cooking at 15 in Washington, D.C. at a very casual restaurant. And at that point, working in restaurants was just kind of exciting. At that point, you're like a young kid working in, in like an adult world. I love the adrenaline. I loved cooking in general. It really had nothing to do with famous chefs or fine dining. At that point, I didn't really know much about it. And then I went to culinary school after high school and everything just shifted completely. Basically, this idea, like in any career path, there's a way that you're considered successful. And when I went to culinary school, that was pretty much defined as going into fine dining. So more or less from that point on, I was 18 at the time until about I was 30 years old, about five years ago, four and a half years ago. The whole point of what I was doing was to see how high I could get in this industry, which took me to becoming the head chef at Noma in Copenhagen, which at the time when I was there, was the best restaurant in the world. So yeah, no, it was amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm so fortunate. I've had a very fortunate career. But getting to that point 
really was was the turning point for me in the sense that I finally had the confidence to really look and say, okay, what am I going to do next? I didn't leave Noma because I didn't like it. I left Noma because I was really just... It's a tough job. It's a lot of pressure and it was time to move on. And I started thinking about what I wanted to do. And at that point, I had the confidence to look at why I got into this career in the first place. And it had nothing to do with what I had been doing for basically the majority of my career. I knew what I wanted to do was to feed people. And I think feeding people is very different than kind of what you do in a fine dining restaurant. I don't really know what you would call it in a fine dining restaurant. But, you know, I think there's two ways to look at cooking. You know, you can kind of cook for yourself. And I think that's what you do in a fine dining restaurant. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, at a place like Noma, people are making reservations three months in advance. They're spending a lot of money so they can eat Rene Redzepi, who is the chef there, his food. That's the whole point. They want to eat his food. It's his vision. So when you're cooking, you're cooking your vision. When you're feeding people, you're genuinely cooking for other people. And I realized my whole career, as much as sure, you know, it is the hospitality industry and you're there to take care of people and to cook for people, you're really not cooking for them. You're, you're kind of, you're upholding a certain standard within your own vision. So I knew I wanted to cook for people. I wanted to feed people. I wanted to cook for people that needed it. Obviously, when you're working in fine dining, you're, you're really not cooking for people that need anything. These are obviously people who are very wealthy. And I wanted to cook for a lot of people and I wanted to cook for them often. And that was something that in a restaurant, you don't really have the opportunity to do. Quite frankly, if your restaurant, you know, if you fail, a customer comes once and never come back. And even, even in a restaurant that's you know, maybe affordable people are coming maybe once a month or so. And I, I knew I wanted to cook for people often enough that I wanted to change kind of what, the way they live their lives. So this was like the starting point of how I got to where I am now. And I went through all these like iterations of ideas of how I could do this, primarily starting with like a fast food type idea where I'd start a very big chain that was very uh, affordable, you know, would compete with the McDonald's, but the food was more wholesome and so on. But I just thought that that seemed kind of almost wasteful in the sense that, you know, there's already a ton of food waste out there. So like producing all of this food seemed kind of a waste, creating all these new buildings and all this, it just didn't seem right. And I I'd stumbled upon an article about school food kind of during this time that I was thinking about this. And I said, that's it. It's institutional food in general. The idea of going into a kitchen that's already there. It might not be very well organized or well equipped, but it's already there. Uh, there's people already working there. Those people are probably not trained. They probably haven't been really paid attention to as they should be. And they're making food every day already, but that food's just not very good. And they're typically catering to populations that have no choice as to what they're going to eat. So, you know, obviously we talk about people mostly in need, but even if you come from a middle-class family and you're going to school every day and that's what you eat, that's what you eat. And that can really have a great impact on your life. Universities, we talk about hospitals, senior care centers and all of this. So that seemed right, like the way to do it. So we've started, and for me until now, still the most intriguing thing is schools, cooking for young kids. I think just because in general, nobody really listens to them. You know, they really have no choice in any matter. And also the idea of being in schools with younger kids and being role models for them in general. So that was the beginning idea. The model 
was very much up in the air. So when I left Noma, all I knew was I was going to start a for-profit business. That's also, I guess, important to mention. I thought that was the way in which I could scale what I wanted to do. That's my opinion. There's people who disagree with that in terms of people think that this type of work is more appropriate for a nonprofit business. I, I would disagree. I think it can go either way. Start a business that's for-profit, putting professional chefs into these spaces. That's really all I had when I left Noma. And for what it's worth, you know, we'll, we'll go over what we've done. But four years later, we're still figuring out really the best way to do it. Well, you know, Dan, I'm fascinated and I have a million different questions about how this all came together and about the core of it and the mission of it. But when I think of the opposite of Noma, I think about institutional food. I mean, it couldn't be like for me more night and day. So let's talk a little bit about the problem around institutional food and in particular school lunches, because no matter how much you make in this country, universally school lunches are so bad. How are you making lunch better? And how do you go about tackling this problem? I'd like to preface that by saying there are pockets of organizations and there are people out there that do this very well. And I think it's important to recognize them, but it is very few and far between, unfortunately. Quite often, these statements are made that school lunch is horrendous. And then the folks that do a good job, they get offended. And they're right. Wait, wait, wait. So how do we know a school lunch is good, right? Because you're absolutely right. There's like aesthetics. There's memories of just being in school. That school is often terrible for many of us, right? So lunchtime is fraught with emotional and social challenges. But what's a good school lunch? That's a great question. And that's, I mean, that's a, that's a whole conversation itself in the sense that school lunch isn't for you. You know, it's not for me. It's not for your listeners. It's for the kids in the school. So this is something that we've battled since the beginning where when we first started the company, we were making lunches that we thought were exciting that we could post on Instagram and people were like, wow, look what these guys are doing for $1.25 and so on. And then the kids wouldn't eat the food. So it's really this balance. It's You're striking a balance. And the answer to that is different wherever you are. I think for me, the answer is always you should be doing the absolute best that you can with what you have at any given moment, wherever you are for the kids. And you need to keep getting better. It can't just be like, oh, we've made an incremental improvement here. Therefore, we're done. No, next year, you got to do the same thing. And next year, the same thing. And quite honestly, that's a really hard place to be. And this is something that I never understood in my life. Being someone who's very ambitious, it's like, you're at zero. If you want to get to 10, you just go to 10. That's you just do it. We're going to just do this. For us, it's like we got to like three and we'll probably be at like between three and five for like the next five, six years. And to be able to show up every day motivated to do a job that you know you're you're not going to get to where you want to be and continuously show up motivated, it's really difficult. So that's what happens in this space. And I would say this is probably the biggest problem with school food is because it's so challenging in terms of feeding kids, getting them food that they're all going to enjoy, working within a school bureaucracy, working within nutritional guidelines, working with a very low budget, it beats you down. And what happens is you end up with a group of leaders, some of which can persevere through this and do it and make it happen. But honestly, the majority end up, I think, just getting kind of worn down and you get into this thing where it's just like, this is what it is. 
Yeah, I can see that. The cynicism can build. I also wonder, there are so many parallels with startups that I hear. You know, startup organizations come to me and say, you know, Lori, we're fighting this battle. It feels like we're pushing a rock up the hill. We get a couple of inches up and then it comes crashing back down. But they're working with full-time employees that they themselves pay. I think your challenge is unique that your labor model isn't necessarily yours. You're not responsible for the labor in the kitchen. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So basically the way we work, and like I said, we're trying to still figure out the best way to do this. Until now, the way we do it is we put chefs into school districts at different kind of ratios, meaning and sometimes we'll put a few more chefs in a certain place than others. But in general, we're putting a chef in a school district that's our employee who essentially is overseeing a group of employees and training a group of employees and working with a group of employees who works for the school district. So obviously this can create a lot of tricky situations. What I will say and what I'm very proud of is like, for example, you know, I can go into a school and ask somebody to do something and I'm so far removed from maybe that school's day to day, but it's just a matter of the way we conduct ourselves. You know, the other day we had a visitor in one of the schools are in from another school district and they asked how is the role of the chef, our chef, the brigade chef perceived in that kitchen? And what is their technical role? And I said, technically, they're, they're just there to kind of advise. But they ask people to do things and those people listen. And that, that has nothing to do with a contract. That's not any kind of legal stipulation. That is literally just respect. It's about carrying yourself the right way. And if you're there to do the right thing and you're there to set them up for success, they want to listen to you. And, and that's the only way to do it. You know, you can't force this transition. And I think that's an important lesson. I wonder if you learned that working in some of the best kitchens around the world, because I think there's one style of leadership where it's command and control. They'll scream at you, right? They'll demand respect. And maybe you give it and maybe you don't. But then there's another way of managing, right? That's a little softer, a little bit more empathetic that considers the whole individual. So what has your experience been in the kitchen? And what have you learned? And what are you taking into Brigade? Yeah, I mean, honestly, from the management perspective, before working you know, I had this interesting career, you know, I kind of glossed over it, but I had worked in some very high volume restaurants. First job I ever had was in a high volume restaurant in a small restaurant group in Washington, DC, but I kind of kept going back there even as I got older and, and managing there was managing. That was folks that, you know, some were really into cooking, a lot weren't. It was a job and that's managing. At Noma, as much as it's a really difficult place to work and operate because you're operating at such a high level, for me, they're managing. It wasn't managing. I mean, you're essentially, you have people that will do anything for you for nothing. They're there to just be there. Like they've sacrificed a lot to be there. There are many people there volunteering their time. So that's actually pretty easy. And now what we're doing is essentially the same thing. Again, you need to get people to buy into what you're doing for the right reasons. And the right reasons can be different for different people. That's managing. You know, managing is trying to motivate people in different ways, you know. If you can manage people by getting the same group of people all on the same page and be motivated by the same exact thing, and that happens. That's not managing. That's easy. If you can get 10 different people to buy into things in 10 different ways, that's managing. And I think I kind of look back at my experience before working in the higher volume restaurants and saying, how do we motivate different people in different ways to want to do this? And it's come in handy because we've seen a lot of chefs are not really suited for this environment. We have folks that are 80 years old in the kitchen who've been there for 30 years who aren't that capable, but you want to involve them in what we're doing. So how do you involve them? It's easy to get very frustrated. And obviously, that's not effective. So that's one thing. I would say 
one thing I truly do take away from my experience at Noma has nothing to do with the food, of course. There's not much similarities between the food there and the food that we have. But I would say it's this idea of, you know, I wouldn't even have done this in the first place and gotten into this if I hadn't gone to Noma in the sense that after Noma, I was like, well, I need to do something big. And being there opened my eyes to what I was personally capable of. It kind of also has driven me to want to continuously do better and find ways to make more impact. So for me, that's kind of the thing I bring to the table every day that at Noma it was like having a perfect day was just kind of what was expected of you. And it goes hand in hand with this idea now that I'm not really pleased on any given day because you want to get better. And that's, again, a very difficult place to be. Every day, you're not really happy with what's going on, but you can find a few bright spots and you can find just enough to keep you motivated, but not too much to have you complacent. You know, it's a really difficult place to be every day and it runs you into the ground. You know, it's much easier when you show up and it's like everything went exactly how you wanted it. It's super successful and you move on or you fail and then you try again. But being in this like limbo area every day is challenging. But I think Noma was a place where it was like, it was just commonplace that every day had to be the best you could do. And then you just had to do it again. And you had to do it lunch and dinner every day. And that's just how it was. So what's your mark of success right now? Because I know as a leader, as a business owner myself, I have like certain metrics that I have to meet. And if I don't meet them, it's only me, you know, but you've got children, you've got people in the kitchen, you've got school administrators that you have to satisfy. So how do you know you're doing good work? And how do you know the people around you are doing good work? Is it food satisfaction scores? Is it budget? Or is it all of it? Like, what is it? It's tough. I mean, I think it's an interesting space. I mean, some of the stuff's a little more black or white. Obviously, as a business, we're not there yet. You know, in, in terms of a for-profit business, we're still figuring that out. I think we're on the right track. I'm not going to say we're not successful because I feel like we've done the right thing in terms of learning. But as a business, we're not like flourishing. So that's the easier thing to look at for me in terms of how we're operating. And the thing that I'm most concerned about outside of, obviously, if the business fails as a business, we can't really continue doing what we're doing. It's generally making impact. And that can obviously be looked at in a variety of ways. But I've come to learn in this space, if in, this probably is true for many spaces, but you can't look at what other people are saying to judge you on your impact and if you're successful or not. And we got very much into that. Obviously, in a lot of spaces like a restaurant space, that's what you do. There's accolades, you get three Michelin stars, or you're number one on the 50 best list. And, you know, I lived my life like that for a long time. But in this space, obviously, you need to know what you're doing and why you're doing it and be confident in why you're doing it and what you're doing. And that's something that, I kind of used to govern our business and kind of my practices and and the way I speak to the chefs and the other employees is this idea of like, if you feel really good about what we're doing, then we're doing the right thing. If we're people that are doing this for the right reasons and they feel really good about it, they're questioning it, but they're confident in what we're doing, then I feel good about it as well. As long as I know we're all on the same page in terms of what the mission is, and I feel as though everyone is trying their best to figure this out, I'm happy with that. If I feel as though we could have done better and like we weren't as critical about certain things as we should have been or we let something slide, that's when I get a little kind of frustrated because I feel like I know what we're capable of and we haven't met that. But generally, I feel like we are doing the right thing and we're learning and we're not making the same mistakes. But it's tough because it's a slow going process. Yeah, I hear you. 
you know. You know, I think about my own childhood and my own relationship with food, right? I can't help but think about it talking to you. And I was raised for a while by my grandmother and she took care of eight grandkids at one point in this tiny little house. And when she cooked, it was almost like a um, factory style conveyor belt. And she would hand us foods and we would maybe have a spork, you know, but everything was meant not to burn us. She wouldn't give us utensils because we couldn't be trusted not to stab one another with them. You know, I mean, it was just kind of chaotic. But what that taught me about food were some really unhealthy lessons and also really didn't expose me to a lot of food at a period in my life where I was developing my palate. So, you know, I went like 30 years thinking I hated guacamole, right? And then I'm 30 years old out with friends and they're like, have you even ever had guacamole? Like just stupid shit, you know? I grew up in the city of Chicago. There's no excuse for this. So my point is that I bet there are children in your universe, in your environment who are like me, who grew up kind of poor, who grew up without access to fresh food, fresh vegetables. And here you are, you're cooking for them now. And not only that, they're bringing home a different sense of food to their families. So I know you have a story about parents trying to replicate some of the meals that you've cooked in school. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's, I, I think it's the power of, seems like it's been the power of social media and particularly Facebook, where we we have a lot of parents. It's actually happened a few times now this year, particularly where parents have reached out to us. We've posted a picture of a meal and they'll be like, oh, we love that meal. And like, we never really post recipes. It's just not something we do. And I think maybe that's just, we're kind of not giving ourselves enough credit because we look at, we, we make recipes that fit these very strict nutritional guidelines. And I think as chefs too, when we cook at home, we just cook, you just make food. You don't think too much of very specific recipes. Recently, we had a parent, particularly about this meatloaf. We serve meatloaf with kale chips. And it's like, you know, a meal we serve, it's been successful from the beginning. But we, we actually had like several people ask for that recipe. And then people making it at home and taking pictures with their kids and their kids eating it at home. And, you know, for me, it's pretty amazing when these are parents who they are trying to cook for their kids at home and they're struggling. And those are the same parents they can really kind of, they can see what we're doing and be like, it's tough, I know. But then when their kids go home and say, we eat meals at school that we really like, and then they're making them at home. It's like the ultimate compliment. It's obviously, the situation is usually the opposite where it's like, you know, maybe at home you eat some stuff that you like for whatever reason. I think sometimes it's just because parents will feed their kids whatever just to kind of like get them. And I understand that completely. I get it. So, you know, when they come to school, we're trying to force this on them on the, and that on them. And, you know, we've gotten away from that. I think we're making food. We really listen to them and we're trying to figure out like what are the best things that we could make. And we have trained people in a professional kitchen. so. Like we should be able to make good meals that that parents, you know, can say, wow, this is a really tasty meal. I'm going to try to make it at home. So those are the moments when you get a moment like that. That's usually enough to keep you motivated for a couple of weeks. Yeah, I was just thinking that. That's got to feel pretty good. So you're making meatloaf. We know that. You're making kale chips. What else do your chefs make? Yeah. So, I mean, it's all over the board. I mean, I think that the name of the game is variety. And that's a hard thing to do when when you have a very limited budget, obviously the more offerings you have, the more expensive it is to do this. But you need enough variety to A, make sure kids are happy, but B, and maybe that should have been A, more importantly, that kids eat. You need kids to eat. And there were times, for example, so we took peanut butter and jelly sandwiches off the menu at one point in the first district that we started in Connecticut, because our second year, I was like, you know, we're really getting more ambitious with the menu. There's still, you know, in any given school, maybe 600 kids in a school, 80 kids were getting a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I'm like, you know, that's not good enough. We should be doing other things. And then you take peanut butter and jelly sandwich off the menu. And sure, there are some kids who like find their way and they start eating other things. 
But then there are kids who like just don't eat. And some of those kids are kids who are hungry. And all it takes is you see that one time, you know, you see one kid that you know is hungry. And then all of a sudden they choose not to eat because your ego is too big to serve peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And then everything changes. So on our menu, we, you know, on any given day, we have a more ambitious option, say something like, you know, I know meatloaf sounds simple, but it is more ambitious. Meatloaf with kale chips, a little more ambitious for some kids. We have very, you know, the other end of the spectrum, simple, simple sandwiches. We made that mistake in the beginning. We made all the sandwiches a lot more complicated, but sandwiches are really for kids who really just want something they're familiar with. So peanut butter and jelly sandwich, we'll make a tuna salad sandwich. And with that said, making sandwiches, I talk about this all the time. You can make a sandwich really well and take your time to make it nice and present it properly and cut it well. There's like a million steps to it like anything else. And I'm proud that when we make sandwiches, they look really great. They look appetizing. They're made with care. And then kids eat them. And then we have things that are kind of like items that... Like for example, so still on the other end of the spectrum, we do a chicken curry that's based off of coconut milk with steamed brown rice and roasted sweet potatoes. We've done chicken gumbo. These are things that are a little, you know, they're ambitious and they, some polarizing items. Then we have like the middle of the road items that we're really happy with and the kids are really happy with. And those are, of course, like the winners. So one thing we did from day one is we took away the chicken nuggets and chicken patties and we put on bone in skin on chicken thighs. So whole pieces of So that was like since day one. So one meal we do that's been literally successful since the beginning, barbecue chicken. So we make barbecue sauce. We have the piece of chicken. We glaze it. It gets caramelized. super nice. We make cornbread. So we serve it with warm cornbread. Oh, now you're speaking my language. Yeah. Yeah, It's like super, super simple meal. So we have a variety of chicken preparations that have worked out well. We Pasta is very successful. Same thing, making your own pasta sauces. So whether it's bolognese or if it's like Alfredo sauce, these are super successful. I think that's the meal that like every kid will eat. So a warm dish of pasta with a warm roll and some kind of vegetable. Broccoli in particular is like we can't have enough broccoli. It's amazing how much broccoli we serve. I'm really surprised to hear that because I don't think of kids as liking something that cruciferous or that crunchy. Yeah, right? well, it's funny. It's like, you know, our, the variety of, of vegetables we serve is not a lot. You know, people are like, oh, you should have more variety. But it's like when we serve broccoli, kids crush it. You know, we do that out with it. It gets blanched. It's cooked properly. So it still has a little texture. We, we make garlic oil. It gets dressed with garlic oil. So it's like something, you know, it's actually tasty broccoli. One of the other things that we do that is not, so, you know, because I think, I look at the menu too as kind of more components versus like full meals. One thing that was key from the day one that I just noticed going into a school was everybody talks about food waste in schools and you have trash cans that literally are full of primarily whole fruit, whole piece of fruit and milk. So what happens is in the national school lunch program, you have to offer five components. You have to offer a protein, a whole grain, a fruit, a vegetable, and milk. Kids have to take three things. And one of them has to be a fruit or a vegetable. So in many cases, the vegetable offering is nothing that a kid wants. So what happens is when they're, they're getting through the line, there's like a, a scrappy metal tray filled with like the worst apples you've ever seen. They're small. They still have the sticker on them. They haven't been washed. They're full with blemishes. Even though you're in apple country, in apple season, that's the apple. Kid has to take it for it to be a reimbursable meal. Goes through the line, throws it away immediately. Even if it was a good apple, they don't have enough time to eat apples. The little kids with a couple teeth. So one of the first things we did from day one was diversify what fruit we were offering, but also cut it, prepare it. So all the fruits cut. We offer whole fruit when we think it's good and kids will eat it. Like kids like bananas, they'll eat whole bananas, cantaloupe, honeydew, pineapple. When we cut that stuff, kids eat 
ridiculous amounts of fruit. So that's something from day one we started to offer on the menus. Salads, we offer composed salads. So a lot of places have salad bars. In some of the districts we're in, they have salad bars and some they don't. But even in the ones with salad bars, we offer like a composed salad, like, you know, roasted chicken Caesar salad. And we'll sell, you know, a hundred of them in high school. So it's, you know, these are all things that like, again, it's all very basic stuff, but we're finding our way finally in things that we're happy with serving and that kids will eat. And that's, that's, I think where a lot of folks miss it. Everybody's looking to make food that sounds exciting to you or I. And I'm not saying that the food we're serving doesn't seem exciting to me, but it is. it's very simple stuff. But everybody's concerned, I think, about the wrong things. Instead of making food that is really good for the kids, it's exciting for the kids. It's what they want. That's who's most important and no one else. Well, I love that you've got a clear benchmark and you know who you're working for and you've got a good team of people around you. And it sounds like you've got some complexities with the way that you kind of interact with local school districts and administration, but you're kind of working that out. As you Grow Brigade beyond 2020, and we wish you great success with that because it's an awesome, awesome idea. How are you planning to grow this? I mean, beyond uh, school expansion, like how do you know you're going to be successful? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, I think the best thing we've done since day one is just learned a lot. And we haven't scaled anything. You know, we're in a few districts. I'm happy the work we've done, but it is, it is time now to like, I think everyone on our team is pretty anxious to deploy what we've learned. So again, we are looking at a variety of ways to do this. We do get a lot of support and kind of inbound attention in terms of school districts that are very interested in working with us. So there's no shortage of that. For me, it's always like, you know, it's a funny thing when you have a business and it's one thing about getting business and that's great. Like we have a lot of people coming to us and saying, okay, we want, we want your services, but that's not good enough when you're trying to make impact. So we're looking at our models and saying, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot you have to put into perspective. There's a lot of pressure on leadership and school administration. So they bring us in we get a lot of press. It's exciting. People are like, we're doing the right thing, but are we actually providing something, a service and a system that will be sustainable over time? You know, I don't want to look back in 10 years and say, well, we had a successful business. We got a lot of good press. People think it's cool. But like, let's look at all the schools that we went into and where are they at now? I think we're seeing mixed success in terms of that when we're there present. Because, you know, the whole idea is that we're not always there. That's very expensive perpetually. Not because, you know, as a business, it'd be great. We just be there all the time and they pay us all the time. And I think districts would be okay with that. But it's just, the thing is, the more money they spend on, on us, the less money they have to do what we want them to do, which is provide better meals. It all comes from the same place. So it's striking this balance. So moving forward, I think we're kind of understanding the model and tweaking the model and the way it works. Our core values are the same. I think we finally feel confident in the food we're providing. I think we understand more than ever how to find the right chefs to do this work. I think we know more than ever how to train folks in schools. And we've really systematized a lot of these things that we previously didn't have. So I think we're finally ready to kind of apply this in a bigger way, even beyond schools. We just started a partnership with a senior center in New York City for homebound seniors who have no access to food. So a lot of similar challenges, nutritional guidelines, low kitchen infrastructure, untrained staff, all the same stuff. So we're starting to see how what we've learned is really applicable. And we're also seeing that it really is a quality and valuable product. So now we are like very busy. This is kind of the time, January, February, March, in terms of, you know, it's funny because all of our business in schools particularly has to be focused on usually the start of a school year. 
but this is when budget decisions are being made. So we're, we're very much aggressively seeking out our next partnerships for September, which is exciting. And, and we plan to go much bigger this upcoming school year than we have previously. So we look forward to seeing how... I mean, it's, it's a little scary because our kind of growth has been tremendously slow, but I think we're, we're ready to, to go faster now. Well, it's been intentionally slow. And I've enjoyed watching it and learning about it. It's been really fascinating. If people want to learn more about Brigade, get involved, have questions, want to reach out, how do they find you? Yeah. So we have a website. It's chefsbrigade.com. I have an Instagram account. It's just my name, Dan.Justy. And then we have Brigade, the Instagram account, just Brigade. And honestly, Instagram is probably the most up-to-date thing of what's happening, meals we're serving. And I think those are usually the most inspirational things to see because it's usually a day-to-day, whether it's my personal opinion or the company's as to what's going on. Spoken like a true entrepreneur, by the way. Like, what? we don't know what's going on, right? But look at Instagram. <laughs> Instagram, honestly, it, it's just very up-to-date. You know, I might go into a school and post something immediately. It's like, this is happening right now. And to me, that's kind of cool. So I love that. I love it. Well, Dan, it's been a real pleasure to see you. And thanks again for being a guest on Let's Fix Work. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dan Juicy. If you're looking for more information on how to follow him or where to get involved, you can head on over to laurierudeman.com forward slash Let's Fix Work dash 95. I'd also like to give a special shout out to Jeff Gordonier, a previous guest on Let's Fix Work. He introduced me to Dan and thought we would have a good conversation about fixing work and about what he's doing. And Jeff was right. So if you didn't hear that episode where I talked to Jeff about his book, Hungry, it's one of my favorite episodes ever of Let's Fix Work. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Let's Fix Work is produced by Danny Osmond and his awesome team at Emerald City Productions. And if you have feedback for us, you can hit us up at hello at letsfixwork.com. Now that's all for today. And I really hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. If you're ready to make a real change in your workplace, start today by number one, subscribing to Let's Fix Work on the Apple Podcasts app or iTunes or Stitcher or Android or wherever you listen. Number two, write a five-star rating and review And number three, share it with a friend, colleague, or coworker who you think would enjoy our episodes.